Happy New Year and welcome to the GBC Sermon Podcast, a weekly podcast from Gamia Baptist Church in Sydney, Australia. I'm Mark Rader, Senior Pastor here at GBC, and thanks for joining us again at the start of 2022. This week we begin a series entitled Jesus and the Sydney Morning Herald, where we consider contemporary issues from the perspective of faith. Over the next few weeks, we'll be considering mental health and faith. We'll be considering why Christians are prone to conspiracies, and we'll talk about climate change and the theology of creation care. And today, we're going to look at the Great Resignation. Uh, it's good to uh, be with you online. It's uh, also good to be starting this series, Jesus and the Sydney Morning Herald, a series where we consider uh, contemporary issues from the perspective of faith. Uh, and uh, we've kind of shown you the topics that we'll be dealing with. And today's topic is the great resignation. I'd ask for a show of hands, but it's kind of a little bit lost uh, because most of you are in your homes and I can't see. But I'm going to assume that many of you have heard the term the Great Resignation, also referred to occasionally as the Big Quit. Uh, it is the, the economic trend of workers to resign en masse, seemingly in response to COVID-19, uh, to the global pandemic that we have been going through over the last two and a bit years. Uh, the term was coined by Anthony Klotz, uh, professor at Texas A&M University, uh, earlier this year, sorry, earlier last year, uh, when uh, he was talking a little bit about the economic trend. To give you a little bit of perspective on it, in April of 2021, uh, 3.9 million Americans resigned from their jobs. This was a fairly significant increase on the overall resignation rates. They keep track of the resignation rates, and over the last 20 years or so, it's hovered around 2%. So in any given month over the last 20 years, 2% of the American workforce would have resigned from their job. Uh, just after COVID burst onto the scene, that collapsed down to, I think it was 1.6% because of the economic uncertainty. Everyone who had a job kept their job. But what's happened as we've entered into, as we entered into 2021 is that that has then skyrocketed, skyrocketed to about 3%, which doesn't sound like a great deal. An extra percentage point, uh, while uh, was still significant in terms of overall raw numbers, doesn't seem like a great deal. But in reality, the great resignation seems to be not just something that's affecting those who are actually resigning, but is actually something that many, many people are considering. Uh, Dan... Um, Plotin Kratz, I think his name was, writing for Forbes magazine, he actually suggests that we should call this not the great resignation, but the great contemplation. A Microsoft work trend survey found that just over 40% of the global workforce was considering resigning and looking for different work. Uh, a job list uh, survey of their, of their um, uh, registered users found that 73% of their uh, registered users were thinking about moving on. And a CNBC poll found just over 50% of those surveyed were considering moving into different work. Now, there's lots of different reasons for these considerations, COVID-19 being one of them. I think depending on which industry you're in, it would determine the kind of rationale or reasoning. So those say, in the hospitality industry or in the gig economy. I think I've been really tired of the fact that they haven't had a lot of job security and the 
perks or uh, the provisions in their jobs have not been evident for them. Um, on the other hand, those who are in, say, white-collar work uh, have, I think, tasted some uh, variety in relationship to their work-life balance uh, from the perspective of being able to work from home. And while I don't think anyone wants to work from home all the time, the vast majority of people that I've spoken to, for instance, have actually found that working from home some of the week has actually been really helpful. Whether it's enabled them to be a little bit more present with their families and to potentially help out with home-based learning, uh, or whether it's just the added time that they have gained from not having to commute, all of these things have led people to consider and to think about work-life balance to consider, for instance, that there's more to life than working. Uh, And working 40 or 50 hours a week, plus spending another 20 hours a week in traffic, back and forth between work, maybe there's more to life than that. And maybe there are some different ways that we can approach it. And so whether you are a student with part-time work, whether you are part of the workforce, or whether you are retired, I think there's scope for us all to be thinking a little bit about what COVID has invited us to reconsider. Because you don't have to be a worker to have come out of these last couple of years wondering if there's a different way to live, wondering if there's actually a different way to prioritize certain things, whether the things that we have put our hopes in are perhaps maybe false hopes. I know that uh, here at the church, you know, the, the last couple of years has really invited an opportunity to think about what may need to change in the future. And I'm, I'm very happy in my job. I'm happy in both my jobs, both here and at Moreland College. I'm not thinking of moving or resigning or contemplating some sort of difference. But COVID-19 has nonetheless invited me to consider some of those priorities of our organization, of our church, of our community of faith. And I think regardless of our situation in the workforce, I think there's an invitation here for us as well. But for those of you who may be part of the, depending on the survey, the 40%, 50%, the 73%, who are actually coming out of, or at least at this two-year mark in the pandemic, wondering to yourself, I wonder if there's a different way to do things. I wonder if there's a different way to achieve a work-life balance. Uh, what, 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 What can we find from Scripture that's helpful for us? And I suppose that there are a few big pieces of biblical advice that might be valuable. So for instance, I think it's valuable, particularly when we're thinking about work, to remember that work is part of the created good prior to the impact of sin in our world. So when God made humanity male and female, when he placed Adam and Eve in the garden, he placed them in the garden to work it and to care for it. So work was something that was given to humanity as a gift from God. There was something about work, about uh, doing something, about having an occupation and a calling that is kind of God's gift in the creation for all humanity. The impact of sin, the impact of that brokenness is not that work is bad, but that we no longer necessarily gain the contentment and satisfaction and fulfillment that work was meant to provide for us. So when we're considering what the future might look like for us, when we're considering what it is that God may have in store for us, I think we need to keep in mind that work is not a bad thing. Uh, Filling our time with meaningful activities is actually a really significant part of how God has made us and an important part of what we ask as we head into our great contemplation. Then there might also be some value in reflecting on wisdom and what wisdom is really all about. 
I think there's a couple of really significant aspects of timing as a characteristic of wisdom that I think are worth reflecting on. Uh, Wisdom is not just knowing the right thing to do or the right thing to say, it's also having the right timing. If you have ever done or said the right thing at the wrong time, you will know that by definition that has no longer been the right thing. It's all kind of probably gone pear-shaped because our timing was off. And I think it's worth asking questions about moves into more flexible work or into a different field or a different occupation and asking, is this the right time? Is this part of God's timing? Is this the wise thing to do? And I think it's also worth reflecting perhaps on what we do with the priority, with the space or time that we have uh, that may come from a change of scenery in the workplace. Uh, If we are going to give ourselves added margin, if we're going to live, as we talk about here, on purpose and create some margin, we need to be really wise about not just filling that up with more stuff, with more things. You may be familiar with that poem in Ecclesiastes 3 that says that there is a time for everything, a time for every activity under heaven. Uh, And and our societal response, the, the response of our culture to that poem is, yes, there is a time for everything, and that time is now. It is right now. That's when we want to do everything. And so if we're going to create some margin in our lives, there may be some things that we need to stop doing. But when I began to think a little bit about the great resignation, my thinking jumped almost immediately to a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, in 1 Kings chapter 19. If you have your Bibles with you, you might want to turn to that. And if you're using the YouVersion Bible app, uh, it'll be in kind of a little bit farther down as you scroll down, available for you there. But let me give you a bit of a, a run-up. And this is going to take a little bit of time. Uh, so stay with me on this one, because I think we need to make some sense of what I'm going to tentatively call Elijah's moment of great contemplation, right? When he gets as close to what we might call a great resignation moment as we're going to find in Scripture. But let me give you a little bit of the background. Elijah is a prophet of the Lord. And he's a prophet who's been sent to the northern kingdom of Israel. It's been quite a while at this point in time since the northern tribes had seceded from the south and created their own kind of their own kingdom. And Elijah has been sent as a prophet to this kingdom by the Lord. Now, prophets sometimes, I think, have a bad rap in our minds. We tend to think of them as kind of wild-haired fanatics on the margins of society, you know, wearing a sandwich board and shouting in a megaphone about how the world's going to end. But in reality, prophets in the ancient world were men and women of influence in the world. They were more like front bench MPs than anything else. They spoke truth to power. Prophets were the most influential voices in forming strategy and policy, both economic and military and political. They were really significant. And Elijah has been sent to the northern kingdom in part to shape their policy, to shape their strategy, to shape the reign and rule of their kings according to the ways of the Lord. But there's been a problem. Because beginning from the the secession of those those northern tribes, there has been a tendency towards idolatry. And again, idolatry was not just something that impacted the religious life of the people. It impacted everything. 
And beginning with a king named Omri, who had become king after a civil war, uh, he had not only formed peace, but he had established a capital in Samaria, built a temple to the Canaanite deity Baal, and then had also forged an alliance with the kingdom of Phoenicia. That political, military, economic alliance was formed and also um, uh, formalized through the marriage of his son Ahab to a Phoenician princess named Jezebel. And one of the things that Jezebel brought with her was the whole scale worship of Baal. And not only was the temple to Baal in the capital city, but eating at her table were the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah, Baal's consort. Uh, Baal was the god of the storms. He was the god of fertility, the head of the Canaanite pantheon. And so when you think about the voices that were speaking most prominently, most powerfully to shape the direction of the kingdom, there were the 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah. And into that situation comes Elijah. Now, Elijah bursts onto the scene and has a meeting with Ahab where he tells him, and this is back in chapter 17, that as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there will be neither rain nor dew apart from his own word. And at that point, a famine begins. Elisha leaves the area. He is cared for in a ravine where there's a brook and the Lord provides food for him. And then when the brook runs dry, the Lord sends him to Zarephath, a town in the region of Phoenicia, uh, where he ends up staying with a widow and they eat the same loaf of bread every single day as God's provision. All the while, the famine gets worse and worse and worse in Israel. And it's important to recognize that this is more than just a meteorological miracle. This is actually a direct challenge to the power of Baal, the storm god, the, the god of fertility, the one who is uh, the, supposed to bring the rains at the proper season to provide for those who might worship him. And in Israel, Baal is powerless to break this drought. Three years pass and Elijah returns. And when he returns, he finds not only has the famine become very, very severe, but also he has become public enemy number one. And not only is he public enemy number one, he is in some regards the only one. For Jezebel has begun a persecution of the prophets of the Lord and has all but wiped them out. He is the only voice speaking for the Lord anymore. He meets Ahab the king and commands Ahab, as only a prophet could, to gather the people of Israel and the prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, a mountain in the northwest corner of the kingdom. And there he challenges the people of Israel. He says to them, how long will you waver between two opinions? If Baal is God, then worship him. If the Lord is God, then worship him. But you can't have it both ways. And then he proposes a contest, and you may be familiar with this. The contest is simple. The prophets of Baal and Elijah will both set up a sacrifice. They'll place the wood on the altar, the meat on the wood, but they will not light the fire. Then both groups will appeal to their God and the God who answers with fire, he is God. The people of Israel think this is a good deal and so they agree to the terms and the prophets of Baal go first. 
they take the altar to Baal and they put the wood on top of it and they put the sacrifice on and then they begin to appeal to their God. And they dance around and they cry out and they shout out and they become ever more frenzied, even cutting themselves to try to get their God to pay attention. But there is no response. Elijah begins to taunt them, wondering if their God is asleep or whether he's able to hear them or is otherwise disposed. And then finally, at the time of the evening sacrifice, Elijah's turn comes. He rebuilds the altar of the Lord that had been torn down, places wood upon it, arranges the meat of the sacrifice on that, and then orders four large jars of water to be poured over top of the sacrifice. And that is done three times until there's actually water pooling around the altar. And then he prays. And the Lord answers with fire. It consumes the sacrifice, the wood, the stones, and licks up the water in the trough. And the people respond with one voice, the Lord, the Lord is God. Elijah orders the execution of the prophets of Baal, who are now proven to be false, and then tells Ahab to eat and drink because a heavy rain is coming. And lo and behold, a few hours later, a heavy rain does come. The drought is broken at the word of the Lord. Fantastic, fantastic, spectacular victory over the prophets of Baal, over the the, the false worship of a false god. And yet the very next day, when Jezebel learns what has happened, she sends a messenger to Elijah and tells him, as surely as the gods live, may they deal with me, be it ever so severely, if you are not dead by tomorrow. And Elijah flees. After having spent three years, shall I say, in isolation, cut off from those that he knew, cut off from his own home country. He returns this marvelous victory. And then in the face of this threat, it just seems to be the straw that broke the camel's back, albeit a big straw. He flees to the south, goes through Judah, leaves his servant in Beersheba, and then journeys a day out into the wilderness, falls under a brush, a broom brush tree and cries out to the Lord. And here's his prayer. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life I am no better than my ancestors. Which is actually a fairly rare prayer in scripture. I've had enough, Lord. Take my life. And he falls asleep. A little while later, he is woken by an angel who feeds him and gives him something to drink and he falls asleep again. The angel wakes him a second time, feeds him and and waters him a second time and then sends him on a journey. And he travels 40 days and 40 nights to the mountain of the Lord. And that ought to sound a little bit familiar to us because this does echo what happened to Moses when he spent 40 days and 40 nights on the mountain of the Lord. And interestingly, both of them experience this while they're grappling with the faithlessness of the people of Israel. And it's here that we pick up the story. And again, I apologize for the length of the lead up, but I think it's important for us to understand all that has taken place to bring Elijah to this point. And so we pick up the story in 1 Kings 19, starting in verse nine. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here? Elijah. And Elijah replied, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, torn down your altars, and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. You can see perhaps why Elijah had had enough. 
I mean, his response to the Lord is really one of security, being the only one of the prophets of the Lord left. They're trying to kill him actively as well. This is a question of security, but it's also a question about meaning and significance. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty, he says. I've, I've poured my life into this. I've done everything that has been asked of me. I have spoken the word of the Lord and become public enemy number one. I have spent time hiding in a ravine and I've gone to a foreign land and spent time there. I've had this marvelous victory. I've been zealous for the Lord God Almighty, but it has made absolutely no difference. In fact, it's been worse than making no difference. It's actually gotten worse. Since he had declared the famine, the prophets of the Lord had been executed. He had been one of many prior to his departure. And when he returned, he was one of one. The people had gone further and further and further and further into idolatry, tearing down the altars of the Lord, rejecting the covenant, the relationship with God. He says, I've given my whole life to this and it doesn't matter. It's only gotten worse. He is at a moment of great contemplation, is he not? What is next? Is there a next? Why bother? And on it goes. And the Lord responds, verse 11, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord for the Lord is about to pass by. And again, there's an allusion to what happened to Moses after the golden calf incident when Moses had gone up the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights and the people of Israel had immediately begun to worship other gods. And in the aftermath of all of that, Moses asks the Lord to show him his glory and the Lord passes him by. And we find something not, not altogether different, but quite different to what Moses experienced. A great and powerful wind tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. After the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And I find it striking that despite the wind and the earthquake and the fire, despite the fact that in the still small voice, Elijah recognizes the presence of God, his answer is still the same. That the presence of God with him there, that the display of his power has not changed his answer one bit. Because he says again, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant, tore down your altars and put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left and now they are trying to kill me too. I mean, this is a man caught in a dilemma and even the very presence of God with him is not enough to kind of change his answer. He is still uncertain about what is next. He still has questions about his security, still has questions about the significance, impact and meaning of his call. And so it is striking what the Lord says in response to this. After the Lord has displayed his power and spoken to him in the still small voice, the Lord says in verse 15, go back the way you came and go to the desert of Damascus. 
When you get there, anoint Haziel, king over Aram. Also anoint Jehu, son of Nimshi, king over Israel. And anoint Elisha, son of Shaphat, from Abel-Meholah, to succeed you as prophet. Jehu will put to death any who escaped the sword of Haziel, and Elisha will put to death any who escaped the sword of Jehu. Yet I reserve 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. And the Lord kind of answers Elijah's questions, doesn't he? He kind of addresses the issue of security. He kind of addresses the feeling of being alone and isolated. He kind of addresses the the matter of what will happen next. He's going to raise up two kings who will end up putting an end to Baal worship in Israel. He's going to raise up a prophet like Elijah himself to be his own apprentice, to carry on the work that Elijah is to do. And he is not alone. There are 7,000 others who are faithful to the Lord. Which sounds like a lot until you remember that they were scattered all across Israel. And if we conservatively estimate that the entire population was a mere 700,000, 1% of the population had been faithful to the Lord. It's a little bit of encouragement. But what struck me most about the Lord's response is that essentially it is a call mission. He doesn't actually address Elisha's concerns that this isn't working. He doesn't actually address uh, Elijah's questions about whether this is significant and meaningful. He actually just sends him back into mission. He reminds him, in fact, of his purpose. He reminds him of the purpose that God had given to him, the task that he had given to him as part of God's own work in the nation of Israel. And I think this is actually a really helpful principle for any of us and all of us who may be contemplating changes in response to COVID-19. Whether a student, a worker, or a retiree. One of the, the deepest, most profound challenges for us as followers of Jesus, when we are reconsidering our priorities, when we are reconsidering uh, what is significant to us, when we're reconsidering the work-life balance, when we're trying to find perhaps added flexibility or more meaning in our jobs, when we're seeking to do these sorts of things, one of the critical questions is really, what is God calling us to? And while we may not have 40 days to spend in a cave on the mountain of God to hear his voice, as Matt encouraged us last week, we want to spend time with God and listen to him to hear his will for us, to hear his plans and purposes, to find out where his invitation is for us. Because if all we do as followers of Jesus is simply look at the pragmatics of it, if all we do is look at the the financial picture, if all we look at is the work-life balance and never consider the invitation of God, then we are missing a really significant step in the process. We need to be those who turn our eyes upon Jesus who look full in his wonderful face so that not only the things of earth might grow strangely dim, but that we might fully comprehend what he is calling us to, that we might clearly hear what he is inviting us into, that we might courageously step into it. Whatever the future holds for you and for me in our great contemplation 
as we consider what it means for us to reprioritize, to reshape, maybe even to change jobs, maybe change fields, to think about other things, to find more meaning, more purpose, more flexibility, whatever that might include, can I really encourage you to make sure that you include the purpose of God, the mission of God, the invitation of God in whatever you think about and think through. So that our great resignation, that our great contemplation may not just simply be pragmatic, but it might actually be a renovation of the heart, rebuilding for purpose. Our theme this year, you're going to be hearing a lot about it as we go. So I hope that that helps you make some sense, not only of what the great resignation is, but also challenges you to consider how you might focus your hearts, your minds, your decision-making on what it is that God is inviting us into. I'm going to take a moment to pray for us before Kat closes our service. So would you please join me? Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity that we have um, in, in the, as we, get, as we get closer to a post-COVID world, to reconsider priorities, to look for meaning in perhaps different places, to look for added flexibility, to perhaps have some significant changes in our lives. And I pray for each one of us that as we seek to follow after you faithfully, that we would not make those decisions in isolation from your purposes and plans, that we would not make those decisions based merely on increased flexibility or uh, time with the family or uh, impacts for us financially, as important as those things are, but that we might also be asking, that we might also be listening to your invitation. And that as we reconsider our lives, as we contemplate where we find ourselves, that we might be those who make decisions based around your purposes and your plans. And that in doing so, we might find fulfillment, contentment, meaning, purpose, and change. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I quite like the idea of a great contemplation, a chance to rethink and reimagine our lives in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. It invites all of us to contemplate God's purposes in the world and his call on our lives to participate, regardless of our work status. So let us learn from Elijah's encounter with God and set aside time to listen to the still small voice of God inviting us to join his work of renewing all things in Jesus. From this week, we'll once again be recording the Big Three Podcast, a weekly podcast that unpacks three big questions raised by the sermon. This is another way that we seek to put our faith into practice. This week, I'll be exploring three questions raised by the Great Resignation. It's a summary edition of the Big Three, and you can find it anywhere you listen to podcasts. Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast. If you'd like to join us for one of our Sunday services, you can do so by logging on to www.gbconline.org.au at 9.30 Australian Eastern Standard Time each Sunday. Until then, God bless.